What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Finance for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wren. Join me as we dig into what it looks like for physicians to begin using their finances as a tool to live better lives. You can learn more about our resources at financeforphysicians.co. Let's jump into today's episode. Hey, guys. Hope you're having a great day. I am planning to talk about 401ks and what to do after you max those out. That's a pretty common question that comes up, and uh, I think there's a lot of different options after that. So we'll talk through what those might look like and what you know might be a good route and what might be options to maybe pass on. Before we get into that, I wanted to give you guys a quick update on just the podcast in general and tell you a couple things we've been working on. So if you've listened a while, you know my goal is really to help physicians in general use money to live better. I think, you know, what's different about us is we're focused on the live better part and not the necessarily the more money part. So, um, you know, that's, that's been great to, to focus on that in this avenue. So in my day job, I work, you know, with a lot of individuals, it's more of a one-on-one basis. So our planning firm, which is Ren Financial Planning, uh, we have several financial planners, including myself, working one-on-one with the physician families. But this has been, you know, a really great way for me to kind of work more in a one-to-many avenue. And it seems like so far we've started to gain some traction. So surprisingly, it's been almost two years. I think it was October of 2020 when I started this. So maybe more like a year and a half uh, since I've been recording And at this point, we're averaging about 5,000 downloads a month, which I still really don't know what to compare that to other than the past. And it's better than it's gone up consistently. So that's, to me, that's great news. But I have no frame of reference, you know, of what to compare that to. So based on the past, it does look like we're getting some traction. So that's always good to see. And more people are listening, which is awesome. Thanks to you guys that are listening. That's 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 great to see. My plan going forward is to start to promote the podcast a little bit. I guess up until this point, we've not promoted it at all. It's just kind of been a, my goal has been to just produce content and record shows and get in the routine and, you know, give it a try. So going forward, my, my goal is to start promoting it a little bit more and start to get the word out and, and that sort of thing. A lot of it, you know, probably will be like online and that, that sort of avenue, but I'm actually going to a podcast conference this weekend. I'm recording this, uh, in late May, but I'm going to a podcast conference this weekend. It's like they got conferences for everything. So, uh, this is apparently a really big conference and it is where you go to learn, uh, the art of podcasting. So hopefully I can learn some some things. I'm still an amateur. I really, you know, don't exactly know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of rolling with a flow. And, and, and so hopefully this conference will allow me to pick up some new strategies and pass, I can pass those along to you guys. Uh, so in the future, you know, the goal will be to get a little bit more tactical with trying to grow this thing and, you know, always continue to provide great content and, you know, even better content in the future. Um, cause that's at the end of the day, that's what this is about is, you know, we got to add value for you guys and that will allow us to grow. So I also wanted to, to say, you know, again, thank you for listening. It's, it's, uh, you guys are the reason 
I'm doing this. And thanks for the feedback that some of you have given and for sharing. Um, also, keep the topic suggestions coming. That's That's been helpful, you know, just to, uh, you know, have, you know, any of the questions you have are great, going to be great topics for us to cover in the future. All right. So 401ks. So we'll, we'll say 401k slash 403b. So I'm sure many of you have those plans available. And if you're in practice or, you know, you have a spouse with a higher income, odds are you're, you know, getting close to or have already maxed that account out. So as of this recording in 2022, the max is 20500 for an employee contribution. Now, if you're self-employed, that's going to be quite a bit higher, but for the employed physician, you max that 20,500 out and you've kind of like filled the bucket up. So a lot of, a lot of you guys in that situation, you know, you might be asking like, what's the best next step? So I think the first question to ask yourself is whether that 401k is enough. Um, I wouldn't, I would never assume these sorts of things it's easy to assume that maybe, it, I mean, some people assume it is enough or maybe they assume it's not enough. So first takeaway is don't assume either way that it's enough or not enough. You got to always go back to your financial plan. I've said this a bunch of times, but that's part of the value of having a financial plan is it allows you to match up your goals with the dollars and you can put those dollars to work to help you move towards those goals. So a financial plan should help you get an idea of how much you need to be saving for whatever long-term goal. Retirement is a big one. Um, so it's going to help you get an idea of how much you need to save to reach the goal. So in some cases, it might be that your financial plan is like indicating that you know, maxing out the 401k is perfect. Like that's, you're on track. So in that case, it's like, well, you don't need to do anything. That's all you need to do. And in other cases, it's going to be like, well, you need to save a lot more. And for the, for the average physician uh, in practice, it's the, the latter is going to be the case just because your uh, income is higher than average. And typically you need to save more than just your 401k or 403b. So I'm wrapping the 401k and 403b together, you know, kind of as one. They are two different types of plans, but they both have that combined uh, total limit. So so anyway, first question is, is the 401k enough? And if not, how much do you need to save? So let's assume that I just told you not to assume and I'm assuming, but <laughs> I can assume because we're talking about a large group of people. There's a good chance most of you are going to need to save more than your 401k. So we're going to assume today that you do need to save more than your 401k. Now, so in that case, like the question is, well, what's next? What's the next best uh, option? So the second thing to focus on is really you, it's about maximizing tax shelters. So tax shelters, what I mean is like putting it in vehicles that uh, provide some added tax benefit. So the first tax shelter I'll point out, which is actually the best uh, tax shelter really of all of them that we'll talk about, is uh, the HSA. And so I'm going to link to some shows about the HSA 
because some of you that haven't heard those are going to be like, what are you, what are you talking about? HSA, uh, this dude's crazy. Um, so check those out to get more on this, but basically you have to have access to an HSA with your health plan through work. You know, that qualifies you to get to be able to fund an HSA. So if you're able to access the HSA, then you can fund this fantastic tax shelter. So not everybody's going to have access, but, you know, assuming you do have access or have that choice and you end up choosing it and funding the HSA, then the second part of the equation is you're using it as a wealth building vehicle as opposed to just a healthcare spending account. So I guess you're using it a healthcare savings account instead of a healthcare spending account, you know. So that by using it as a uh, wealth building account or in other words, investing it. So most HSAs allow that. So by investing your HSA, you're able to leverage that fantastic tax shelter. And I would consider it the best tax shelter, like I said, of all these that we'll talk about. And I'll, like I said, link to the other shows where we talk more about like what that tax shelter is and uh, why this is a beneficial strategy. But, uh, but I would rank the HSA using it as a wealth building vehicle as probably the number one alternative tax shelter beyond just maximizing your 401k. So that's the first one. Second one to potentially consider tax shelter wise would be the backdoor Roth IRA. So backdoor Roth IRA, that's actually just a made up term like that. If you know, technically that doesn't actually mean anything. What's technically happening is you're funding a traditional IRA and then converting it to a Roth. It's kind of a way to fund Roth IRAs, no matter what your income is. This is a kind of a multi-step strategy. The key is you got to understand the rules. There's some hurdles or problems that can crop up in funding a backdoor Roth IRA that you have to be aware of. But as long as you're following the steps correctly and taking into consideration all these potential issues, it's a fantastic, fantastic tax shelter uh, that allows you to save in addition to your 401k and save those, you know, dollars, you know, very tax efficiently. I've covered uh, backdoor Roth IRA a few times in prior uh, episodes, so I'll link to those as well in case you want to dig into um, what the backdoor Roth IRA is, is, how it works, that, that sort of thing. But basically, if you're, you know, if so going back to point number one, if the answer to that question is, yes, you do need to save more than just your 401k to reach your long-term goals, then you know, you should be considering backdoor Roth IRA as a, you know, really good alternative to start filling those buckets up to get you on track for that long-term goal. So beyond that, so other options at work would be worth considering. Oftentimes the question is raised to us, like, what do I do? I've already maxed out all my work retirement plans, uh, but I know I need to save more. Where do I save? Uh, but what, what people sometimes don't realize is there's actually other work retirement plan options available through your, you know, employer. Uh, some examples that come to mind are like 457B plans, cash balance plans, deferred compensation, uh, after-tax 401k. So those are just some of the more common options. But a lot of you will have like additional options where you can save on top of that max from the 401k or 403b. So the 457, let's look at that example. So the 457 has a completely separate limit. The dollar amount is the same for employees. You can put in the 20,500 this year, 2022. 
into the 457, but it's a completely separate limit uh, beyond the 401k. So in other words, you can max out both at the same job. The thing to watch out for 457s is some of them, basically there's two main categories of them, governmental or non-governmental. Governmental 457s are fantastic. Like they're basically like the 403b 401k, but a little bit better typically. Non-governmental 457s is the second category. They're not nearly as awesome. Uh, So those are, you got to, especially if you have a non-governmental 457, you want to be a little cautious with that and understand how it works and dig into it and before you start funding that kind of a plan. But it's definitely an alternative uh, tax shelter to consider. Cash balance plans, I mentioned that. uh, That's kind of like a additional bucket to fill up beyond the limit of the 401k. That type of plan, similarly to the 457, you really need to understand how it works because they can they're a little more complicated and there's a lot of variances that you'll see. But the most common negative with the cash balance plan is it's kind of like no flexibility on how it's invested and you're limited to like a really conservative investment option, which if you're really young and getting started, that's like not great because you can take risk and it's going to hurt. It's going to lower your expected return and ultimate efficiency by being super safe with the money. So, but it's definitely still worth considering, especially the more you need to save uh, and the higher your tax bracket. The other one I'll mention just for today would be the after-tax 401k. That's like a provision that your company's 401k would sometimes offer and allows you to fund more than just the 20,500 employee limit. It's like a separate bucket that they allow you to fund as an employee, and it's kind of more like the employer part of the equation. Uh, it's not Roth, it's after-tax 401k funding. So this is another one you got to look into and understand how it works and see what your specific company allows or offers. But if that is an option, you know, that can be an additional bucket to save into. I think the, the big um, consideration I would say start to throw out on these like other options through work that you got to look out for is first of all, some of the complexities I've already thrown out. Like you got to understand these, there's a lot different, a lot of different types of structures and you got to understand the pros and cons. And then the second thing is expenses. So sometimes the expenses are extremely high on these sorts of add-on plans to the point where even it eats into the tax benefits. Sometimes it completely eats into it to where it's not even worthwhile, but they can also get really complicated. So it's, as you, you know, start to consider these options, you want to be aware of the expenses, the complexity, what type of plan, pros and cons of that specific plan that you're offered. So other options through work can be fantastic, but you really need to look at the specific plan that is available. There's also kind of like another, uh, category of options I would consider uh, for those of you that have like second jobs or even like side hustles where you're self-employed. This gets even more complicated in terms of like the rules that you have to be aware of, especially. So especially for the um, self-employed setup, but you know, it's definitely something we advise often on, you know, with our one-on-one clients. And it's something I know many of you would would potentially benefit from is so if you have two jobs for example 
you know, you can oftentimes fund both company 401ks, but you have to be aware of how that coordinates. So I'll give you just an example of, you know, one that might come up. So let's say you're a partner in a practice and you're maxing out the 401k there, but let's just assume that it's all coming from your employer, which often happens. So let's say you're in a small practice and the employer in air quotes, the, the employer, like the practice is funding all that 401k hundred percent. So the max when the practice is funding, it is much higher number uh, than that 20,500. So, but let's just say the practice is funding all of it. And so in that case, so let's also assume on the side, you're uh, self-employed in like an unrelated business. And let's just say you're making, you know, 20,500. So in that example, you're actually able to fund through that side hustle, you're able to fund 100% of it to like a solo or an individual 401k as an employee contribution and max out that 20,500 bucket. The reason is because your practice was 100% funded by the employer. So in other words, you've not yet filled up your employee uh, 401k max bucket. So, and that number actually can be even higher than the 20,500 if you're making higher through the side hustle. So that can allow you to fund a lot, but it's, it gets complicated quickly. So like, for example, if you have a 403B through your primary job, that kind of messes with the rules here a little bit. Like it, it adds, adds some additional limits that can often restrict this. Another thing when you're looking at this sort of situation is you want to focus on making sure like you're maxing out the matching dollars. Uh, oftentimes you'll have like a match with both employers. So you have to like kind of coordinate the two together and make sure you're leveraging that. I think the key when you start to get into this realm of stuff is like hiring or leveraging advisors or consultants or those sorts of things, especially if you get into um, self-employed retirement plans, um, you're going to be able to, you know, oftentimes save quite a bit tax sheltered uh, when you have that set up, but you have to be really careful that you're like following all these extra rules, you know, between the two plans. So when you get into, I guess the further down we go down this list, you start to, you have to look out for like um, expensive products. I guess like the salespeople start to come out the further down we get down this list. So you have to look out for like expensive products that are, you know, overly complicated and potentially so expensive that they were eat into that tax benefit. So on a, sometimes there's even products that are not even in these categories I, I've thrown out that are often brought up as these tax shelter alternatives. Uh, so some examples I'll throw out um, like annuities or permanent life insurance. And they're, they're typically sold as like the answer to this question. So the whole, this podcast we're talking about is like, I've maxed out my 401k. What do I do next? So oftentimes like these financial services companies or uh, salespeople will sell these vehicles like annuities or permanent life insurance as solutions in themselves to this, you know, issue of like where to save next. The problem with them is they have, they're typically extremely expensive. Often it's like very difficult or impossible to figure out the expenses. That's always a warning sign. Like if you can't figure out what's going on, don't do it. Uh, but they're typically sold as like the Swiss army knife style. Like this is gonna, 
you know, provide this t- additional tax shelter. I'll link to a podcast where we talk about some of these a little bit more. But you have to look out for those vehicles. And I think I would encourage you focus on like the traditional vehicles first and not the products themselves. So what I'm talking about is like focus on like the 401k, 403b, 457, like the IRS blessed like tax sheltered retirement plans or HSAs or those sorts of things. Those are like vehicles that the IRS uh, has, you know, kind of like signed off on and created code around. Now, and I would, on the flip side, I would uh, be cautious with some of these like insurance company created products that are in themselves designed to be tax shelters. So that doesn't mean that they're always bad. It's just, you just want to be cautious with those. And in some cases, like your work plan can be really, really expensive. So maybe your, um, your, you have access to a 457B plan as like an alternative through your work, but like, it's just really expensive funds in the plan. So that can be like a restricting factor, you know, maybe even to the point where it's not worthwhile. So especially the further down we get on this list, like you just want to be aware of the, you know, that, that aspect, like the expense aspect and the complexity aspect Um, in order. I think a good rule of thumb is like, you need to be able to explain it to somebody else, uh, you know, at least the general pros and cons uh, and understand the expenses and understand the basics before doing it yourself. If you can't understand, if you don't understand it, like you need to be, you don't want to put your money into it. So that's that second, uh, that's a big broad bucket, but like this, the second big point is like maximizing the tax shelters. As, like I said, as you get further down the list, you want to exercise some caution. But um, once you've maxed out that 401k or 403b, typically the next thing you go to is like what other tax shelters are available. In a lot of cases, many of you will um, max everything out. So let's say you've uh, you've got a 401k through work, you max it out, 20500 Let's say you have a 457 as well, but you've maxed it out, 20500 Let's say you're also maxing out backdoor Roth IRAs. And, you know, let's assume again, your plan says you still need to be saving more on top of that. So then, you know, what's next after that? So, you know, if you've maxed out all these tax shelters that are available, which, you know, often happens, uh, then you go to things like non-qualified investments. So stuff that's, uh, you know, like a non-retirement plan. I call them non-qualified investments. Uh, some pe- sometimes people call it like a brokerage account, but basically that's just like investing in your name um, instead of investing in like a tax-qualified uh, vehicle that's like special, has some special tax treatment, like a 401k or IRA or whatever. So non-qualified investing is basically just investing outside of all these vehicles we were just talking about. Uh, so like a, p- a plain Jane brokerage account, like just investing in your name, Technically, a savings account is a non-qualified investment, uh, but like that's typically the third thing to look at is like if you need to save more on top of the tax shelters, typically you're going to start looking at like some of these non-qualified or less tax-efficient investments. So these, like the vehicle itself is actually pretty simple. It's just like invest in your name, uh, but what you have to keep an eye on when you get into this realm is when you invest in these types of accounts, you can trigger taxes and they will, you know, cause 
harm sooner or, you know, they, there's no tax protection. So, or, or less. Uh, so like, whereas with a Roth IRA or something, or, or even a 401k, like, let's say you buy an investment in a 401k or Roth IRA, that's like, just chart, just growing like crazy. And it pays all kinds of dividends and generates all kinds of income. And it just, you know, explodes in value, uh, and pays out income and interest and dividends and all, all sorts of income that doesn't affect your taxes. Let's say you sell that investment that's grown a ton in a Roth IRA, 401k, those sorts of things. It doesn't affect your taxes. Now with, with uh, non-qualified investing, that's a completely different story. So same investment is growing like crazy, generating an interest and dividends and spitting out income. You know, everything's, you know, theoretically going well. But each of those uh, different uh, avenues of growth will, in some cases, generate tax for you in the, in the in the current year. So you have to be much more aware of like the tax impacts of the investments you place in the vehicle. And ideally, it's like tax efficient stuff. So, you know, like, for example, uh, real estate, like real estate uh, funds, like when you just buy real estate in like a investment fund, generally, that's not very tax efficient. Just the the income that it kicks out is typically not as tax efficient. And so that's not the best vehicle to own in your taxable investments. It's not like the worst thing, but it's like you have a probably have a lean towards owning that in like a Roth IRA or a tax sheltered investment um, and would probably be less. It'd be a little less appealing to own it in just a non-qualified investment because it's going to fully realize that tax hit. Even more of an extreme example, like let's say you have a um, investment account like that you're trading on, on like E-Trade or Robinhood or something like that, and you're trading a lot. So you, let's say you're buying stocks here and there and selling stocks here and there. That, you know, can be, I mean, you're investing your money, so that part of it is good. But the problem with it is oftentimes you're kicking out like, short-term capital gains. Like if you buy a investment and sell it in a short period of time, like, you know, say a few months, if you only owned it a few months, that's going to cause short-term capital gains. And they're like the least tax efficient. If anything, you keep it for, you know, over a year and get long-term capital gains, those are much more tax efficient. And ideally, maybe you don't even trigger long-term capital gains. You just hold it for a really long time. Typically with tax taxable investments, like non-qualified investments like this, you want to like defer taxes as much as possible and avoid triggering tax now. That's like on general uh, the strategy. And so the more you trade, or the more the funds that you even own trade, uh, the the more it's going to generate taxation. So trading a lot is typically an issue with these kinds of accounts, or even having like a broker. A, a lot of brokers like have high turnover, like they're trading. Uh, or even the funds that they put you in are high turnover. High turnover means like the stocks get traded a lot. So that's typically terrible for tax sheltering purposes. Um, so the key with non-qualified investing is you got to watch taxes. Taxes become an added expense. So on top of like normally paying attention to like the expense of the vehicle itself, like the tax that it generates is like an added expense on top of it all. 
but you can be if you're if it's managed well, like you can be pretty tax efficient with your non-qualified investing. You know, you can pay attention to those investments that you own. You, ideally, your tax loss harvesting. That's that's another term I'll throw out. I'll link to a show that where we cover that a little more. But there's there's basically basically like you know a list of things you can do to like minimize the taxation on this type of an investment vehicle. You know, knowing that it's more sensitive to tax. The nice thing about the a non-qualified investment vehicle is like there's no limit. Like you can put a ton of money into it. You don't have to worry about the funding limits that you would typically see in all the other tax shelters. Um, also, it's like ultra flexible. You don't have to. There's not really near as there's not really any uh, limitations that the uh, you know on the when you take it out and you know, it might trigger a tax, but it's not going to be like penalized. It's not like retirement accounts. You have to hold it in there for a certain time in a lot of cases to avoid any adverse tax penalties or whatever. Uh, with, this, with this type of investment, it's super flexible. So that can be a solid alternative, particularly when you've already checked off those first two boxes, like you know you need to save more and you know you've maxed out all the good tax shelters. That's when this comes into play. So that's non-qualified investing. The other thing I'll throw out as a side note, I meant to mention this, like with, if your goal long-term is like saving for education, sometimes like that can be an additional tax shelter that you might consider is is saving in like a education savings account. Uh, So if the goal is for education, you know, you might explore that tax shelter as well. That can be a really fantastic vehicle to save into. So first thing, figure out, are you saving enough? Should you be saving more on top of your 401k? That's when you consult your plan to see what that should look like and how much you should save. Second thing, look at all the tax shelters, make sure you're maximizing those. Third thing, if you still need to save more, look at non-qualified investing. The last thing I'll throw out before we jump off, this often comes up is like, well, what about getting into real estate? Or, you know, I got this investment deal my buddy's doing or syndications or whatever. Um, so I would kind of lump those all together in like more active businesses uh, that even if they sometimes call them passive investing, like these things, when I say active, I mean like it's going to require some effort on your part to like screen them or manage them. So let's say it's real estate, uh, like buying, investing in real estate, like you're going to have to be the one that like decides which type of real estate you want to invest in. And you're, you know, especially if you're directly owning property, you're going to have to manage it and make sure you get tenants. And that can be, you know, a pretty uh, intensive uh, business. And so it often comes up as like, well, I've heard that it's worthwhile to invest in real estate as an alternative. And so that can be fantastic actually, but I would kind of look at that as more of a business than I would. I'm it's an investment, but it's more of like a business you'll have to be active in, you know, depending on what business it is at, you know, varying levels. And so I don't think you should just, I don't think that's for everyone. So you need to, I would definitely not do that or go that route just because of the tax benefits or because people have said it's a good thing. I think you need to have good reasons to do that outside of all 
of those things. So maybe, for example, you have a passion for doing real estate or you really are interested in it and you enjoy building something. And, you know, ideally you have some solid reason for doing it that's like independent of all this stuff. In that case, it can be a fantastic thing, but you kind of have to look at it a little differently. I think it's not for everyone. So that's that's the last thing I wanted to throw out. Um, I hope this has been helpful. Um, as always, I enjoyed chatting with you today and uh, we'll look forward to catching up next time. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. If you found this valuable, please give us a review on iTunes and share with a friend. Also check out our website at financeforphysicians.co for all sorts of additional content. See you next time. Finance for Physicians is not an investment, tax, legal, or financial advisor. All content included in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial tax or legal advice. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by Finance for Physicians as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. If you don't have an advisor or would like a second opinion, feel free to check out our website for recommended advisors.